If you pay attention to college admissions, then you know about Eric Hoover. If you don't know about Eric Hoover and you pay attention to college admissions, then you're not really paying attention. There simply aren't many folks out there that have spent and are spending the time to really figure this world out, quite like my guest on this episode, award-winning Chronicle of Higher Education reporter, you guessed it, Eric Hoover. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome, folks. Thanks for coming through. I'm Davin. I'm a college counselor at CollegeWise in New York City and a former admissions counselor at the venerated University of Rochester. And I talk to people who are as curious, if not more so, than I about this world, about this very intriguing element of our national and global culture called college and college admissions, like my guest today, Eric Hoover. But first, hit that subscribe button and that fifth star on the podcast rating option there in iTunes. Just as hard as Myers Leonard hit the dunk against Draymond Green in the game of his life. The game that was not enough to keep my Blazers, the best Blazers, in 20 years from being swept by Pikachu McMouthguard and the rest of the Silicon Valley Warriors. I'm not bitter. I am not. This is, was an, it was an amazing run, an amazing season. I would rate it five stars. Uh, not that I can compare myself really to this Blazers team, this historic Blazers team, but when it comes to podcasts uh, about admissions that are named The Crush, this is 100% the best one out there. No question. So go for it. Show a little support. Thanks. So Eric's been in this game for a really long time, and as such, he's covered pretty much every element of admissions uh, that there is to cover and some that others perhaps didn't or wouldn't think to cover, like his work relating to students in Nepal coming to college in the United States, which we cover in the second half of this admittedly longer than usual interview. So I'm going to limit my thoughts here and afterward and just kind of let the tape roll. We talk about how he got into this racket, what it's like to cover it, uh, how he's seen the game change or not over time, and how he sees his reporting role in terms of the national narrative about admissions. If you want to take a break, I have built one in around the 45-minute mark. If you're maybe complaining to yourself right now by looking and seeing that this is almost two hours long, uh, that it's too long, it is still 90% shorter than Avengers Endgame, every bit as gripping and also free to consume. You're welcome. But the uh, second half focuses a good deal more on a few particular stories of his, namely the verification trap about the challenges low-income families face when applying for financial aid, as well as A Long Lonely Path, the story which covers uh, the very different experience that students in Nepal have in applying to colleges in the United States. Eric and I met in the middle between his hometown of D.C. and my hometown of New York in lovely Philadelphia, PA. Hi, Eric. Hey, guess what? I have a, um, I have a special surprise. All right. Special surprise for you. A couple of them. Number one, today is... My birthday. Oh my goodness. Happy birthday. Thank you. And I couldn't think of a better place to be spending it than right here in the city of brotherly love with Eric Hoover. I've got here a little a little cooler guy. Um, don't worry, this isn't like a kidney or insulin or anything. What's in the box? Oh my word. Tell the tell the people. 
Wow, it's sip of sunshine. Sip of sunshine. He hasn't even had any yet. From Vermont. I know. I know. It's just caffeine in there. This I feel like I first heard about from you and 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 uh, Mark Moody, and who Moody, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm gonna pour a little of this on the carpet. Yeah. For him. Um, <laughs> Because at Nakak Boston, there That's was right. a there was a place that had this, and you guys were like, "This, uh, you know, hurry up and get it." Yeah, we were geeking out uh, when we found it on Draft, and uh, I think we almost got escorted out of the restaurant due to our level of excitement. So. Uh huh. Well, here you go. So thanks, man. Well, Lawson's finest liquid, sip of sunshine. Uh, go ahead. It's allowed because right. we are at a WeWork. Cool. And uh, cheers. Cheers and happy birthday. Thank you very much. Let's, uh, it's quite tasty. Well, uh, I am thrilled to have you here. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that, um, it's taken so long because frankly, you know, there's no shortage of things to talk about with you. Um, not just because you're an engaging individual to speak well, with sure. anyways, yeah. but also because you crank out a lot of stuff um, and a lot of really interesting stuff. And it's all the kind of stuff that I think I really like to learn about and to know about um, that feeds a lot into what I do here with this podcast. And I think that when I'm doing research to talk to other people, inevitably Eric Hoover's stories end up being part of the, the, the foundation of my research and understanding the background for, you know, talking to people like Lloyd Thacker and Rick Weisborn and, uh, and uh, Annie Resnick of the Coalition and, you know, so on and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I guess, I'm, I mean, no real end to that sentence except to just say, welcome, happy to have you. This is awesome. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, the Chronicles kept me around a while, so I've met a lot of people. Yeah, we were talking. You've been there for how long? I've been there. Um, it will be actually 18 years in about two months. It's a long time, man. It's a long time. Um, never thought I'd be there quite that long, but it's an increasingly rare kind of place to work in journalism. A real commitment to in-depth reporting. Uh, when appropriate, to narrative writing, um, the opportunity to have the time and space to flesh out issues and to tell human stories along with all the other things we do. Um, it's kept me there more than anything else. Uh, mm. And also just great people. Uh, so many colleagues I've learned from. Chronicle has its quirks like any other newspaper, but it definitely uh, definitely is just a rare kind of odd treasure of a place to work at least that's how i feel on good days well i think that when you, i mean when you kind of look out at a landscape of journalism and publications and things people tend to read i mean the chronicle is a very niche outfit definitely with sub niches uh throughout you know i mean and in that way it really sort of mirrors higher ed and that that you have uh somebody who can dedicate their time exclusively to just the area of admissions which sure. in itself i think you know you're not necessarily even the only person that writes on things that have to do with admissions either are you no no uh we definitely yeah i mean that that opportunity to specialize um to totally geek out you know i think definitely uh helps uh position reporters for um I'm going to say mastery of a subject. I don't feel like I'll, I'll ever master uh, anything I write about, but um, repeated attempts to explain something complicated, I think, helps make you a better reporter. Yeah, I mean, your goal isn't mastery, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, what I feel is it? like um, often 
I think of it as, okay, sure, sometimes my job is to explain what's really happening and to um, uh, make the best case for an explanation of truth, right? But at the same time, when it comes to writing about the realm of college admissions, I feel like so often we're talking about grayness, right? There's no absolute right or wrong uh, answer to so many questions that uh, are circling throughout the admissions universe. Can I help clarify that grayness? Can I help explain it? Uh, Sometimes that's what I feel like I'm doing. Hopefully not further uh, muddying the waters or muddling up um, people's understandings of something. But if you're talking about um, so many uh, goals that an admissions office might have, so many of them are contradictory, so many of them exist in tension. So I'd say I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying to clarify what what that grayness is and to explore the inevitable tensions that arise when you're trying to, say, increase student diversity and also maximize tuition revenue. Uh, Go meet both those goals at once. Um, How do they um, go hand in hand and how do they sometimes oppose each other? And how does does an admissions office work that out? Mm -hmm. To me, that's a whole lot of grayness. And there are certainly some moral questions that one could come down, you know, on this side on or that side of, of a debate over admissions practices. But I do feel like so many of them are meaningfully complicated and hard to um, distill into one definite conclusion. And we see that in so many aspects of college admissions. Well, yeah, I mean, and you've been doing this, as you said, for nigh on 20 years now, a couple of decades. How have you how did you get there in the first place? You went to Virginia. Yeah, I went to the University of Virginia, and uh, I, I didn't really fit in uh, my first year, which is part of an answer to your question of how I ended up uh, at the Chronicle, but also in journalism. I mean, I was one of two uh, freshmen in my dorm of four. Well, fit is everything. Fit. I mean, yeah. fit, I mean, fit is everything. Yeah, um, I was not a good fit. I didn't know what I was. I don't know really why. Did I you grow into it? I grew into it, um, mostly because I found weirdos like me at the newspaper. I was uh, not interested in being in a fraternity, which made me a very strange person in my dorm. I didn't have a popped collar. There's, Uh, what, 16,000 undergrads? Oh, when I was there, no, it's uh, smaller than that. I mean, I don't know what it is now, but it's uh, it was more like 12, 13,000 when I when I was there. Okay. And I came down to the newspaper and um, knew I liked to write. uh, And then just that's kind of where I found my crew, my three best friends, my future wife. I met them all in the basement of Newcomb Hall at the Cavalier Daily student newspaper. Um, I started reading the Chronicle at that newspaper when I became one of the uh, top editors at the student paper in my junior year or third year, as we say, uh, (laughs) at Mr. Jefferson's University. My predecessor showed me where my mailbox was, and in those days we got all kinds of you know actual paper or mail. And mm-hmm. the, every Tuesday morning, um, there was this big publication that looked kind of boring and dry. Uh, but my predecessor said, "Oh, you got to read this every single week because I was in charge of making sure we had enough uh, content to fill the paper five days a week." And he said, "You got to read this thing to understand what's going on all over." Uh, you know, the, over the country when it comes to education, higher education issues. Um, it's your Bible. Read it. So nerd that I was, I actually started reading about issues that were um, playing out at other uh, public 
universities, particularly diversity issues. Um, read a lot about University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and Berkeley, and I started asking, "Hey, are these things happening here on our campus? If so, let's let's explore them, and if not, let's let's figure that out too." Are you one of those people that doesn't like people to know how old they are? Oh, I don't care. Okay, so we're talking late '90s here. We're talking, yeah, mid mid to late '90s. Okay, yeah, so I graduated '97, right. and uh, right. so I was one of the rare uh, college students, by virtue of my experience at the newspaper, who had actually heard of the Chronicle of Higher Education, which, I mean, let's face it, it's a mouthful. Um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a many syllables. Um, so years later, after two jobs in journalism, when I saw an opening at the Chronicle of Higher Education, I thought, hey, there's a national publication. I'm actually familiar with it. Um, I'd known a couple of people who had interned there or worked there. Um, I So I'll apply. And when I came in for... And it's right in your backyard, kind of. Yeah. So... When I applied, I could actually come in with a straight face and say, I've been reading the Chronicle for years. And the editor at the time said, oh, really? Tell me more, like a good reporter. Yeah. Um, maybe sensing that I was bluffing. And I said, OK, well, I remember reading this story from 1995 at this campus. And I explained it in detail because I have that kind of um, long-term memory. And um, he gave me a funny look. And I thought, he's either really disturbed that I'm this, this weird, uh, or he's maybe mildly impressed that this you know 26 year old kid could actually spit back um, pretty precise details of a story that at that point I had read uh, six years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably helped um, that 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 I had this kind of long term relationship with this obscure uh, paper uh, that most people in the world haven't heard of unless they've worked on a college campus. Yeah, how did you end up working that admissions beat in particular, and has that been has that been there since the outset? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I started, it was a jack of all trades uh, kind of kind of assignment for me, and that was good. It was uh, uh, at the time uh, I was the lone reporter with what we called uh, used to call the students section. There it was, middle of the paper each week, it just said students on top. So it was like, well, that could be about anything, right? Yeah. And it sure was. I mean, one week uh, or one day, I might be writing a story about financial aid policy, um, which, of course, then I knew zero about. And it was terrifying to learn all that. Um, the next day or the next week, I'd be writing about, you know, the usual kind of hijinks that college students get themselves into, um, an epic drunken bash that led to all kinds of problems on a campus, um, fraternity issues, um, uh, diversity. So every day and every week I was thrown into a different kind of story. And I think that really helped me understand, uh, the richness of higher ed better. Um, uh, and then, you know, after a few years of just writing about any and all subjects, um, uh, in a pretty, pretty broad coverage area, I became an editor. And, uh, for three years I did that and I had to figure out how do I uh, help other people, uh, improve their reporting and writing. And it was a great challenge and I enjoyed it. Um, so as an editor, I mean, that's, that's your job is, you know, people run, run what they write by you and you have to do what? I mean, yeah. I mean, as an editor, you're helping, um, what I had to learn is it's not just helping someone, you know, make their story better once they've uh, turned it in, you know, uh, editing the sentences and restructuring it. I mean, that's its own challenge, but all the best editors I've worked with, what they're, what they're best at is helping you, the reporter, come up with the idea in the first place, shape and refine the idea, you know, right away. And as you go along, um, so, you know, people think of editing as what you do with a pen or the keys that you type on a keyboard. And certainly that's part of it. But the true genius of editing, which I never really mastered, um, 
happens, you know, in a conversation or in a series of conversations one on one with that other reporter as he or she is just beginning to do research, um, make calls. Um, and, you know, that so much of the editing happens off the page. So once I kind of got a taste of that, I thought, you know what, I, I really want to do, I want to go back to writing again full time, um, you know, and, and no longer be an editor. The Chronicle was kind enough eventually to let me do that. And then it was uh, a question, what was I going to cover? And of all the things I'd covered in the years before, the, the thing that grabbed me the most uh, was just college admissions and enrollment issues. And I just felt like there was such complexity there um, and all this inherent drama um, along with all the dry and geeky technical stuff that you know uh, is inevitable when you're uh, looking into any uh, admission story but i thought um, i, I want to be a, i want to be a part of that those those became my favorite stories to edit and when i finally got out of the editing chair again i thought let me just dive in and learn everything i can about admissions and uh, and see where it see where it takes me how'd you do that how'd i do that yeah well, dive in and learn everything you could about it yeah um, i read ton of books um so this would have been in uh the first couple years after um what's uh what's the uh what's the book about uh, gatekeepers the the gatekeepers yeah they're gatekeepers um there was this huge article in the atlantic uh maybe 2000 2001 by james fallows um about early decision and it was kind of an inside look at how this process worked set right here in philadelphia at penn and um that article just blew me away because what it what it showed me was that um, you could go way deep, and I don't remember exactly how many words that article was, but it wasn't just the length of it um, that stuck out. It was just the depth and richness of the reporting, much of it behind the scenes on this system, um, this elaborate system that uh, serves this great purpose for the institution and how it affected students. Um, I thought, you know, Many admission stories might just be very short, quick takes on something, but you could also have a really intelligent, uh, keen, thoughtful examination of this horrible sounding process, the early decision racket or whatever it was called. Um, and that, that really inspired me. Um, another answer is I met, I met I think people. that is, I think it was literally called something like the early decision racket or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was, uh, you know, it was quite a read, but I, I, I feel like people still bring that article up and sure. uh, it feels like a turning point when, um, America was, uh, becoming ever more obsessed with the intricacies of the process and how to game it. Um, and colleges were having to figure out, you know, among other things, how much do we let a reporter in the room to tell the story? So reading was one thing and then just getting to know people um, and, and, and not in a superficial way when I had the opportunity. I mean, I, I would say the most meaningful by far um, moment in my career in writing about college admissions uh, was meeting a guy named Lloyd Thacker. Uh, Lloyd Thacker was a former college counselor who left his job at a high school in Portland, uh, your hometown. Shout out. Yeah. Go Blazers. And he started the Education Conservancy. And I wrote a profile of him as he was just getting going. And he was attracting this large following of people who were just uh, amazed. Episode by 12 what he was guest, saying. by the way. He's He's been on here too. I mean, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, through Lloyd, I got to know all kinds of people in admissions because he invited me to early gatherings, uh, an early summit, as he called it, in Portland of the Education Conservancy. And there are all these big name deans. So you spent time in Portland. I spent time in Portland. I think yeah. I knew that. 
No. When uh, were you going there? The, this was this would have been like 2004. Okay. And I met Ted O'Neill, formerly of University of Chicago, and mm-hmm. Mary Lee Jones, formerly of MIT. And I met them in a, a in a very relaxed setting over two or three days. And Mark Moody, uh, college counselor extraordinaire. He's getting too much airtime. Yeah. That's going to have to be yeah. the last mention. Okay. All right. Um, and I, I had a chance to uh, talk to people on and off the record in a really relaxed setting yeah. over two and a half days. And um, honestly, I, I feel like almost everyone I've ever met in admissions, um, you could trace it back to, say, the two dozen or three dozen people who were there at this conference with Lloyd Thacker, who was kind enough to invite me to just tag along and, and learn about, you know, not just his organization's goals, but also just what what was ailing the profession, what was on the minds of some of the leading admissions officers and most plugged in college counselors of, of the day. And some mm-hmm. of those people from that moment on uh, were just great, helpful sources and guides. So I, I really feel like that was a, a major moment in the little story of my writing about this weird world for the last 15 years. When you were in Portland, did any of you happen to take the uh, the light rail train around town? The max? No, I, I just hoofed it. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a very walkable city. Sure is. They uh, they did that on purpose. Yeah. They put the, uh, the urban growth boundary around it to make it a little bit, you know, to make it that way. Uh, but had you ridden the max... Uh, you would have heard the, 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 the voice of my mother, who is a recorded voice on the light rail train in Portland. Wow. Can you give me a taste of what that sounds like? She's still there. Every time they open up a new stop, she goes in and records it. Wow. Yeah. FYI. Wow. Was that ever weird hearing that? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the first time I heard it, I was, you know may have had a couple of sips of sunshine as it were yeah and i was headed to a portland trailblazers basketball game and i had kind of forgotten that that had happened you know i heard my mother's voice and i said that's my mom you know on the train and wow. people are just like what the what? I mean, some people might not ever be the same after that moment uh yeah i certainly wasn't um you know because this is a walkable town you know you, you go walk around the streets it's right there it's there above ground right the doors open there's mom I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than that, you know, for the therapist. But yeah. um, the as far as admissions is concerned, I mean, what do you you've been so, you know, your career spans a really interesting number of years, both in terms of, you know, the the way that journalism has shifted um, from paper to online. Yeah. And I am not being hyperbolic at all, and I'm not being ageist because it's not like we're you know miles apart from one another here or anything. But like you were in college, like there's barely the internet. That's right. Um, yeah. And so now you've you know different paradigm. But then also in admissions too. You know you talk about being there when that Atlantic article came out, and and that being kind of a harbinger of the fact that things were changing in mm-hmm. a certain direction, and. Um, Kind of how I want to formulate this question, but like certain things never change. A lot does change, uh, which is probably I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to call that my deep thought for the for the mm-hmm. day. That's good. <laughs> Let me just have another. Yeah, just take another sip. Okay, um, but what I guess I'm I, I'm I know I, th- I feel like I have a really good sense of what has changed over that period of time. What are the constants? What are the things that just like for 20 years, like it's been, you know, twas ever thus? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, that just uncertainty um, 
and uh, on both sides of the equation. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I've come to understand that even colleges that seem to be blessed with, you know, two of everything, um, uh, at least, uh, yeah, or a million of everything, um, they still have their anxieties. And it's, you know, at colleges that are uh, super wealthy Heavy and hyper-selective. Yeah, they're they're not worried about filling their beds the way many, if not most, um, enrollment chiefs are to some degree. But they're they're hyper competitive over, say, a small handful of kids that they've pegged as future Nobel Prize winners. Um, and you know, uh, it's debatable as to whether or not that's really an important thing to worry about. Uh, but someone is sweating something in every office. And um, I think that's a constant. I think on the other side of the desk... Um, Nobody ever uh, just puts it into neutral. As no, no one puts manager. it into to neutral. And there's, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, what people love or decide that they just maybe kind of hate about the profession sooner or later is that as one uh, enrollment uh, chief told me Name every year it's a new campaign. I think it was Kent Barnes at Augustana. I believe it, it was he um, who, who, who put it that Kent. put it that way. Yeah, Kent, you said it. Um, you know, that there's this adrenaline rush and you have to continuously gear up um, and yeah, learn all the new wrinkles, right? And certainly mastering technology, figuring out how to deploy technology meaningfully um, in the admission space is an ongoing headache, right? But the constant is, well, um, there's just something to be uncertain about. And now there's even more of it. I think, um, you know, the question of who has control, I think, uh, uh, you know, ultimately who has uh, the most control over this process is something that um, freaks a lot of people out. Is it, is it colleges? I, I mean, I, I would say in the, in the end, yes, uh, of course it is. Um, but certainly many people who work in the admissions field will say, oh, no, the students now have the upper hand because they have so much more choice and because there's been a collapsing of distance, uh, at least among, you know, uh, students uh, who are well-heeled. Um, well, sure, right. I mean, even though I mean, it sure hasn't filtered down to them, right? Yeah. That news. Uh, that they've got the upper hand. Yeah, well, right. Um, uh, I mean, they have it to some degree. Um and I would say just that level of, of anxiety and, and uh, often palpable in a sense of uh, panic. Um, I also I also think I mean there's there's look there's plenty of reason um, uh, to and, and good reason to be skeptical if not cynical about um, the admissions process. In many ways, it's just ridiculous. But I do think that that many people in the field and this isn't often a, a popular statement at uh, dinner parties when I'm asked you know for the secrets of this horrible uh, landscape that I write about. And I, and I would say not all, but many, many people who steer these ships and admissions offices, I think they really mean well. They might be compromised in many ways by institutional wants and wishes. They can do some nasty things to applicants, right? Um, but I feel like many of them are wrestling with that. And I feel like that, that wrestling is um, not a new thing. It may be more intense, but again, uh, how to balance goals that, um, are competing, if not downright contradictory. Um, when you have considerable power as the head of an admissions office, but really these people aren't as powerful as one thing I've really learned. They aren't as powerful as they might seem to parents and students who think, oh, the admissions dean is like the wizard. Um, he's going to let me in. He's going to let my son or daughter in or not. Um, it's so much more complicated than that, as you know, right? Because admissions deans and enrollment vice presidents, they have bosses too. And often those bosses are telling them which levers to pull. Um, and so I think 
just that tension of how do I explain this work to my bosses when I'm under orders to do X, Y, and Z through the admissions process. I'm interested in your relationship with, speaking of the gatekeepers, uh, people like this, and you know the extent to which it's valuable to you to get them to talk, right, and to tell yeah, you stuff. Sure. And I guess where do you find it hardest to peel info out of people like that? It's definitely become a greater challenge, um, generally speaking. And, you know, no one wants to hear a reporter complain about how hard his job can be. And, and I don't mean to do that here, but I, but I do They'll think They'll just it, fast forward through this part. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, well, good. Well, then I can say the following. Yeah, go for um, it. I do think this is uh, this is more than uh, just belly aching. Um, it, it's an it's an observation. It may not be everyone's, but I do think this is a cultural change among colleges generally uh, to be more guarded with all kinds of information. Since the time I started writing about college admissions, um, there's been ever increasing scrutiny of colleges for many good and reasonable, um, you know, reasons by journalists, by legislators, by everyone. And that's fallen heavily on admissions offices because, as I've been reminded over and over again, outside of a sports victory or some sort of crowning glory on the gridiron or on the basketball court, there are only so many ways that most colleges that aren't world famous have. There are only so many ways to tell a story about how great they are or how uh, well the college is doing or how it's succeeding or getting better. Um, and a major way to tell that story is through um, these metrics uh, that have become so prized and so closely watched. Uh, what is our acceptance rate? How many applications do we get? How many more applications do we get than the year before? Those metrics tell a story on the, super, on the superficial level of a college's awesomeness, right? This is our institutional awesomeness. We're great. How do we know it? Uh, look how much we're in demand. Um, and, and look at how great that demand is relative to our competitors. If a reporter starts asking about those statistics, um, there's often a, there's often a willingness to you know talk about how those statistics reflect well on the institution. But I'm often asking someone to tell me the story behind the numbers. Okay, you have more applications from this subgroup of students than you did five years ago. Um, that's great. That's an end result. But what's the beginning and the middle of the story? Um, often that's that's a story about struggle or a challenge. Um, colleges often want to tout, you know, the growing number of, say, first-gen kids they're enrolling, which which has become an important uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, not so willing to talk about why that number was much lower a year earlier or two years earlier or five or seven years out. Um, and often I'm saying, okay, great. Before we get to, you know, the conclusion here, which is this year's great metric that you're proud of, tell me about what the road was to getting there. Someone had to have realized that mm, five years ago, you weren't doing such a great job recruiting and enrolling and perhaps funding low-income students or first-gen students, whatever the case may be. Tell me about that and tell me how you got there. I feel like 10 years ago, there was more willingness to say, something like, okay, dear reporter, um, we realized we had the following three issues and we were concerned about that. There was some deficit, there had been some uh, neglect, there had been some oversight, and then we wanted to go about fixing it. Um, colleges just aren't as willing to go there and I understand it to a point because they say the wrong thing. Um, it sounds like they're saying, I'm, I'm bearing this great flaw of our institution. That, I mean, sometimes that's frustrating. It's my job to like get around it. But I think sometimes, if not 
more than sometimes I'm on the phone with an admissions dean or director or enrollment official who I know pretty well and and I and I trust them and they're telling me I would tell you at least some of this story or talk to you about why we're worried about say this demographic shift in our backyard and what that means and how we're getting around it but they're often telling me but I'm not going to because of the following concerns. Usually there are two concerns that they cite. One is sometimes just I'm under orders from my president or whoever else not to talk or talk much about these things. Mm-hmm. And also a growing concern that if a college is doing something a little differently than it did before, it might also be doing something a little differently than its competitors. And there's a, a often a concern uh, about you know revealing some secret sauce or some new wrinkle that might um, you know that they might want to keep under wraps. I mean, I, I'm often skeptical of that because I think there's only so many ways to recruit a class or break into a secondary or tertiary market. Um, there's only so many ways to communicate with um, students through whiz bang um, innovation. But it's easy for me to say that because I'm not the enrollment manager who is competing against 17 other colleges in a 50 mile radius. Um, so it's hard. I mean, there's, there's just a, there's, there's less of a stomach for having those kinds of conversations, at least on the record, um, increasingly. So you do a really important service, I think, which is to provide as much transparency as possible to a world famously opaque thing. Right. And I think that as is the case with any, system or institution or you know representative entity everybody knows that the party line's not the truth mm-hmm. you know that they're towing a line here that they're i don't think anybody would begrudge an enrollment manager for saying on the record my boss and you know my president and my board of trustees are telling me that i have to do some things because of course they are Mm-hmm. Right, like of course they mm-hmm. uh, have to. That's who they answer. I mean, that's who they pay. That's why they have a job is because these people are happy with the job they're doing. But it's so kind of this like poorly kept secret, right? Mm-hmm. That that that's the truth. What's the allergy to being more just honest and forthright about the struggle? Because it's real. I mean, yeah. and I think a lot of people are that say, but the, but but you know referring to your comments earlier that, that, that it's tough for them to be a little bit more on the record about how tough their job is and the kinds of forces that are at work to, to, to guide their hand in the, the kind of policy decisions they make. Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, the allergy, uh, as you put it, I think, uh, I think the answer is that it's often fear. Um, you know, even institutions that seem absolutely powerful and venerable um, are are often fearful, um, and uh, that that's how they often operate and behave. Um, I, I think um, I think that's that's part of it, and that is um, many institutions have good reason to be worried about their um, long term standing. Whether that means they're scared that the most drastic thing of all could happen that, that the college would fail and have to close. Uh, or that it would just grow weaker and weaker and weaker um, financially and otherwise um, if its enrollment fortunes you know declined. I also think uh, right the uh, there's there's a great need that institutions have to tell a story about 
admissions outcomes and strategies um, that they could say with a straight face are about doing good for the world. I think the dichotomy, um, if you can think of it that way, of an admissions office's role, collective role is to, uh, I would say, at least ideally, do some good for the world, whether that's your local community or your state. Justify on how your tax exempt status. At least. <laughs> exactly. And, and, to, and to make the world better and to provide opportunity to young um, humans or humans of any age who are seeking to do something, uh, go to college, get a degree, become someone. Um, colleges do that, right? I mean, that, that, there's, there's no denying that colleges have that do-gooding power. Um, but I think, like you say, everyone knows the deal. You have a board of trustees, you have a president, and you have a long sheet of goals to accomplish for your institution. And those are often fair to describe as selfish, right? And so, um, uh, I, I think I think that's where colleges often. We're um, talking here about institutional priorities. Institutional that, that priorities would be right? the, the sort of buzzword to 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 encapsulate what. Sure, that's and I think I honestly, I think some some members of the admissions field, and sometimes they when they open their mouths and 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 talk turkey, they they piss off uh, people who are listening. They piss off college counselors. I'm thinking of a prominent dean who's often getting up and saying. I've heard him say it at conferences. Names, yeah, I mean, uh, Christoph Guttentag at, there we go. at Duke University. Duke, yeah. um, I, my hat, as a journalist, I tip my hat to him for his candor, uh, at least on this point. And that is, look, I've heard him stand up and say more or less this. Hey, yeah, I know we're doing these crazy things to your students. Um, I know I know we put them through a lot, um, but hey, it's not about them. It's about us. And maybe people don't like to hear that because it kind of shatters some illusion. But I respect the core of what he said. And I, if I misquoted him there, I apologize. But that's the gist of what he has said um, publicly and also to me in various ways uh, for articles about, hey, let's just be on- let's just be a little more honest with the public that, yeah, we're doing good for the world and we're going to enroll students that we believe have great promise and will make uh, the universe a better place. But first and foremost, we are meeting our own, I would add, selfish institutional goals. We have our reasons for admitting this kid and not this other kid over here. And that comes down to us and what we want or what we need right now. Um, I think colleges can do a much better job of explaining that, even if some people just simply don't want to hear it. They want to believe that, well, it's really just a competition based on some definition of merit and uh, and who in which decisions will do the most good for for society, I mean that's simply not what's happening in admissions, or at least not only what's happening. Well, and you and I should say, obviously, in this, you know, paradigm, I guess you're describing. We're talking about selective college selective admissions, college, right? Yeah. The people that, that that say no to more uh, people than they say. I mean, yes aren't those probably. the only colleges that matter? That's exactly yeah. what I wanted to do. I don't is know to what just any make sure, sure yeah, yeah, that yeah. we were yeah. clear on that fact sure. that yeah. those are the only ones that anybody cares about. Um, and uh, on the other hand, they can't help but dominate the narrative sure. for a variety of reasons. They are these sparkly, shiny, famous things that everybody knows. They're luxury brands at this point, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, Barack Obama uh, was not at the Manhattan College basketball game yeah. last night. He was at the Duke game, you know, uh, and, and it, there's a reason that we care about these things um, because we tend to care about famous stuff that, you know, we can just describe uh, a certain degree of value to because they are elite no matter what. But you were describing a process in a, in a, in a reality that those of institutional priorities that are true 
for every college sure. and that they've all got very different needs. And I like to take, you know, I, I think about institutional priorities is like I put those into the category for students and families of like things you can do nothing about. You know, there's don't worry about, you know, how many students they need to enroll from this state versus that state or how many international students they have sure. or how many, you know, whatever, they, you know. Um, and uh, but I wonder, you know, as a journalist and somebody that needs to, you know, maybe at the beginning of your career I would have said sell papers. Uh, now I would say, you know, get some clicks. Yeah. Uh, how conscious of you, are you or how in the interest of transparency? Uh, what do, do you receive any level of instruction or guidance or editorial input that says, yeah, you know, this sounds good, but what about if we maybe used a more famous college here for this kind of a thing? Yeah, honestly, only, only occasionally. Uh, I, I mean, that I would say only rarely, um, and I, and I think that um, I'm lucky in being able to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, because of where I work and that would probably not be my answer if I had spent the last 15 years at a mainstream publication and I so two parts that one is um, the Chronicle um, by design by its mission um, and owing to the curiosity uh, of of my colleagues and editors um, you know wants to reflect um, as best we can, the diverse, the great diversity of institutions, which is the defining uh, characteristic of the American higher education system. Um, so uh, every now and then, at, um, once in a blue moon, have I um, been nudged to write about an institution first and foremost because um, it's a big name. Otherwise, I can say that some of the most rewarding, if not the most rewarding experiences I've ever had, have been writing about colleges that most people, if hardly any people, have ever heard of, um, inc- including some that I hadn't heard of shortly before arriving on the campus. For example, Lincoln Christian University in the middle of a cornfield, stretch of cornfields in, I want to say, South Central, Central Illinois, um, summer of 2010. Uh, I went. I went there to uh, spend the day with an awesome guy um, named Palmer Muntz, who was then in charge of enrollment and financial aid. I came on move-in day, um, and on move-in day, the college, the university was still um, accepting applications um, and uh, reading over an admissions application. Uh, making sure everything was in order and deciding whether or not to admit people on move-in day. Um, and on that day... Were they there with their stuff and the application? You know, I don't think... I don't... You know, I, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. I mean, <laughs> lots of people were carrying boxes. I don't think uh, anyone who was applying that day, like, you know, I mean, okay. think of that also, like applying in person. Like, yeah. Here you go. Here's my yeah. application. And checks and, out. All yeah. Right. And then, oh, we still need this document from your school and uh, we, we'll get that in a couple of days. Oh, it's fascinating, but... By far, the most fascinating scene I've witnessed, I think, in an admissions office was sitting there with Palmer Muntz, who was kind enough to let me into this very intimate conversation. And here, here's here's what it was. It was a young man who originally had uh, planned to go to a private institution, um, maybe one state over. And over the summer, a few weeks before he was to go to that college, he went to uh, a weekend Christian retreat, some sort of camp. You know, there were concerts, and um, he came home uh, 
uh, very religious young man. He came home and he told his parents over a plate of spaghetti, I believe it was, Mom, Dad, I've been called. I've been called by God to be a minister. And so in short order, this led to a conversation about uh, deciding not to go to the private university that he had uh, committed to um, and going to Lincoln Christian instead. Uh, The only trick was this family didn't have a lot of money. Uh, They had a second child who was a year or two behind this young man, and they had to figure out how they're going to pay for her college. He had a pretty good offer, not a full ride, but maybe uh, well on the way to it from this private institution. What would it mean to turn that down and go to Lincoln Christian, which uh, could only offer him a very, very limited uh, financial aid package based on what he qualified for and based on the limited resources they had. And it was going to cost them an arm and a leg to send this young man to Lincoln Christian, but he wanted to become a minister. And he it was true to him uh, that the Lord had called him to pursue this calling. And he decided that he desperately wanted to go there. So if you're the admissions officer, and I should say the director of financial aid, and in addition to being the VP for enrollment, how do you ethically counsel this young man um, who believes that it's the most important thing ever that he come to your university? But you you're can basically s- standing between God and that student. Exactly. And, and But he can see he's trained to read financial aid documents. He can see what this family has, and it's not much. Um, and I remember, you know, the mother said, but but the Lord wants him to do this and that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll figure out a way to make it work. We'll take out loans. And uh, Palmer, being a religious fellow himself, said this with all due respect to her, but he looked her in the eye and he said, um, okay, but I, I'm just telling you, Jesus doesn't pay back parent plus loans. You know, he can't help you there. And, and it, he, he was not being flippant. He, I think he was being incredibly kind and thoughtful. But watching that play out, um, one, is just not something I'm going to see uh, in the admissions office at Harvard. It's just not, you know. And um, so uh, I, think of, I think of experiences like that when I think, uh, as I often do, okay, what are my next few stories? Um, and the ex- to the extent that I have some freedom, if not great freedom, to pursue this story over here and not this other opportunity uh, over there, um, I'm, I'm drawn to those kinds of stories and institutions that um, have, I feel like, more uh, the, the day-to-day kind of human drama reflected in them. Hi, this is that break that I mentioned. Go to the bathroom, return that phone call, finish that email, or uh, just hang on for a few seconds and enjoy these beats. In the next part, we talk about his trip to Nepal, his story, the verification trap about the pitfalls of even applying for financial aid, some predictions for the immediate future in admissions, and listen with intrigue as I attempt to pry from him the names of colleges he knows for a fact will soon be going test optional. Okay, let's get back into the beers number three and four part of my interview with Eric Hoover from the Chronicle of Higher Education. Well, I am, I mean, one of, I'll call it maybe the primary catalyst for, you know, making this happen here today is the article that you wrote that came out um, not long ago, A Long Lonely Path, about your trip to Nepal, um, which is the culmination of a lot of reporting that you did um, about something 
that, I mean, you know, you, this was an, this just sort of emerged, yeah. you know, I mean, it, and, and I'd like you to tell that story a little bit about how this, how sure. this came about. And then I'd like to, to dig into this story in particular, apropos of the fact that, you know, you get to go to, uh, all kinds of places to tell these stories that all relate to this and that the, it is not an American thing. It is a pretty global human phenomenon. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I learned that Nepal is real, real, real far away. Um, but <laughs> so pretty deep. Uh, last April, even farther turns out than South Central uh, Illinois. Yeah, I they mean, just call it for, South for sure. Illinois. By yeah. the way, now well, the food's better though um, in Nepal. Uh, so yeah, I uh, uh, last April uh, woke up one day and I looked at my phone and I saw a barrage of tweets uh, sent to me and some other reporters from um I, I didn't i didn't even know where they're from i saw these names that were very unfamiliar and the letters seemed to be in the wrong places and uh they were uh, kind of uh, bombing me with tweets and and my first reaction just as someone who has a uh, kind of you know ambivalent uh at eric Hoof, by the way yeah 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 send 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 all tweet bombs to me um <laughs> I'm a, I'm a bit ambivalent about social media anyway, and I just saw my 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 instinct was oh all these people are are um, throwing all these uh, uh, tweets at me like this can't this this has to be like something um, to ignore, uh, which perhaps isn't the best instinct for a reporter, but it's just just I, but I, as somebody who's Twitter famous on the other hand yeah well I mean, yeah I to, mean uh, with 2.5 million uh, Twitter followers yeah, you you know, like, I'm I'm kind of like a, a rock star but, that was you with the um, Kenny G in your living room right <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so I, I just I, honestly, this is this is kind of a shame to admit now, but I, I ignored them for a day because uh, the, the, my brief glimpses at them, uh, they they were alleging that this university that I, I will admit I had never heard of the University of Texas at Tyler um, had done something that seemed so outlandish that I that I was like, I don't know what this is about. But, you know, strange things happen every second on social media. Um, the next morning I woke up, I had even more tweets. Um, and I started reading them um, and I thought there's no way in hell that, first of all, dozens and dozens of students from Nepal applied to the University of Texas at Tyler. It just seemed uh, outlandish. I mean, I even checked, is, is UT Tyler like um, a real uh, campus? And I mean no disrespect to Tyler. I'm, it's just a comment of my own ignorance, right? But Suffice to say, it was well outside my realm of experience. So this regional campus of the University of Texas um, and where it was and what, it, what its mission was. Um, and then right as I was just kind of getting interested, my antenna is perking up. OK, maybe this is something This seems odd. Maybe I should look into it. I got an email from um, two people. One was Angel Perez uh, at Trinity um, in Hartford and he very kindly but very firmly said, you know, Hoover, um, I don't know if it's on your radar or not, but if it is, like, you, you, you have to look into this. This is a huge deal. Um, and here's what happened. Um, and then a college counselor I've never heard of basically saying the same thing. This is, a, this is like an international college access crisis that's unprecedented. And they're both right. And so anyone who missed it, uh, University of Texas at Tyler promised, uh, granted, I should say, full ride scholarships to... Uh, close to 100 students who had applied from Nepal, um, you know, over November, December, January, February period. And then in the middle uh, part of April informed, I can't remember the exact number, but about five dozen of them 
that oh sorry they're you know due to uh, high demand uh, we've basically overpromised our scholarship money and we can no longer offer you the full ride but if okay, you so want, it wasn't like a glitch it wasn't a there there was some long term oversight um, it's the best description I can offer based on what I was ever told um, it wasn't demand I mean demand is when you know you sell too many tickets to a boat and there's not room if the boat sinks you can't say it was because well demand exceeded our expectations no someone screwed up and let too many people on the boat so it was human error mm-hmm. um the exact nature of which i admit i never was able to pin down but you know i'm getting this story i'm seeing these details i'm, I'm uh talking to people in nepal um on skype and uh here's you know here's what happened these kids were ecstatic to get this life-changing full-ride scholarship almost all of them were low income to say the least uh their families think that not just their son or daughter's life was going to change as a result but the entire course of a family was going to change and then when does this email come it comes on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. That is the New Year's of Nepal, when the whole country is like gearing up to celebrate like mad, and students get this like absolutely devastating news. Um, and the best that the university can offer them is a, a five thousand dollars scholarship and then uh, in-state tuition. So still well into the five figures, well beyond the reach of almost all, if not all, of these students. And I had to figure out how to write about it. And I mm-hmm. thought right then. Um, after getting on the phone with a, a woman in Singapore named Joan Liu, who's a university advisor there as a college uh, counselor um, at a secondary school, out of the kindness of her heart, the passion that courses through her, she saw this as a as a as the crisis that it was. She wondered who in the world is going to help them. She had really no connection. She had no connection to any of these kids. She knew Nepal, but she just decided to to jump in. And um, I talked to her within the first couple days of the story breaking, and she was basically barely sleeping, um, crashing out on her couch at like one or two in the morning and then getting up early to start all over again, calling all the people she knew all over the world to ask if they would help counsel these students, to ask colleges if they had space and could make room. And I was just struck by the, the plight that these students were in and how heartbreaking it was. And also what very early on was a a selfless global effort to help them on, you know, lots of people helped. But the people who did the heaviest lifting all happened to be women, groups of college, a small group of college counselors who basically said in so many words, screw this, we're we're fixing this. And to me, that's it's by far one of the most compelling events I've I've ever covered it was just dramatic why is this why is this such a big deal and i you know i, I don't i just i don't want to make any assumptions here you know and I, I think that let's say you know tyler had just denied them all because they don't have the money to support their attendance right this wouldn't be a story you know but it was in your mind what is it about this story that made it that gave it this literally like huge global impact that you call as you just did as compelling as it was yeah i think two things uh first just what i early on came to understand as the immensely life-changing power of a full ride scholarship 
It would be true for a poor kid here in Philly um, to have uh, been handed a full ride scholarship because uh, potentially, um, hopefully, that represents um, an, an opportunity, a whole row of open doors um, that, that can change someone's life. Um, but it's especially true on the other side of the world in a country that is among the world's uh, poorest um, for students who have almost no idea in most cases how to navigate the U.S. admissions system. So one, it was the power, potential power and enormity of that full ride scholarship and what it represented to poor students from an often overlooked country um, on the other side of the world. But most of all, it was the fact that a university had given something. It didn't kind of sort of promise it or suggest maybe that this would happen. It had given the scholarship, as much as a scholarship can be given before you actually enroll, to all of these students. Um, they had been told that they would get it. Um, the president had written in a form email to all of these students to say, yes, this is a full ride. It's really true. Um, it might sound too good to be true. Oh, and it includes books and a meal plan. Um, and to be given something and then have it taken away months later um, is different than a university denying, say, a zillion low income. And safe uh, to say students. that, you know, this doesn't just this isn't just a. Uh uh, almost, it's almost incidental that they happen to be Nepali. That yeah. this is very, it's extraordinarily rare, like in admissions in general, sure. that you know something like this is offered and then rescinded, like not by mistake. Right. I mean, uh, I think this has surely happened many times to a student or two from you name the country, pick one. Uh, but a giant cohort of them all being in the same boat. Had um, they given this? In, a, had they given a, some, something similar to, to to other students in that in that uh, admitted student class, or was this them saying Nepal, not them? Well, uh, from one year to the next, the there was a tremendous spike in international students applying to UT Tyler. Um, they were expecting very few as had been the case the previous year and the year before and the year before that what was new was this full ride scholarship they hadn't had it the year before the full ride scholarship was designed to keep uh high achieving students from texas particularly east texas uh in state or to uh, divert them to ut tyler as opposed to other campuses that they could have attended at some point they made a determination that yes we would open this keep this scholarship, our now, what's now our top scholarship, open to international applicants. After all, they had had hardly any in years past. Um, through the power of social media and the wonders of the internet, word got around quickly that during that cycle, at the beginning of that cycle, oh, there's a new scholarship. How much? Oh, it's a full ride. Is it open to international students? Yes, indeed, it sure is. Um, so words spread like wildflower wildflowers that too wildfire words spread like wildfire uh online among students who just happen to be from nepal so mm -hmm. so as i recall nearly all the international applicants that ut tyler received and you know got that year um nearly all the applications just happened to come from 
from Nepal. Um, I'd add that another reason this was such a big deal, why why, why it was um, to me um, so dramatic, was uh, not only was were these students given something that was taken back, they were promised something that promise was broken. Um, the many, many, many weeks in between when most of these students got this seemingly good news and then got this terrible news, um, the many weeks that passed were incredibly meaningful. Uh, and that is, many students rescinded other offers. Um, a couple you know, who had spots at like the most selective institution in Nepal decided that they were better off going to the United States. So they gave up their seat um, at this university in Nepal. Others had you know, decent offers, not full ride offers from other American institutions that they also turned down, um, told the school they weren't coming because after all, they had gotten this amazing full ride offer from Tyler. So it wasn't just taking something back. It was the fact that many of them had doing what we want students to do, told institutions that ultimately they were not going to you know, enroll at, uh, that they weren't coming. And so they we're left high and dry, uh, you know, as you know, mid-April, it's crunch time. It's it's done. May 1's coming. Um, May 1's the time everybody's got to submit their enrollment deposit in exactly. this country. And so. all the financial aid, um, in most cases, is, is gone or mostly gone and promised away. Um, so I think the timing of that, you know, to your question about why this was such a big deal, uh, the timing seemed especially cruel because, uh, you know, the movie was almost over, so there wasn't there wasn't any way to rewind it for these mm-hmm. students, mm-hmm. none of whom had college counselor. Mm-hmm. So right. Um, so now, um, flash forward: these students are all, as far as we know, they're enrolled in colleges that that all that all sort of picked them up. The diaspora of would-be Tyler kids. Most of them. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them, not quite everyone. And that, I have to imagine, has had an impact on the next generation uh, in terms of where they're looking in, uh, to, 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 to go to college in the United States and saying, hey, those guys are the ones that they, they took uh, my friends, so maybe, maybe they'll do the same for me, right? I mean, how has, that, how has that played out at those campuses that took those students? You know, I don't know so much about um, the effect uh, for those campuses yet. It may be too soon to tell. I can, I can definitely say that among many of the students I met in Nepal and I interviewed, it's surprising the list of institutions that they're considering, list of institutions in the U.S. You know, all of them knew the details of what, I mean, at least the general arc of the story of what happened to the other Nepali students ahead of them at UT Tyler. Um, many of them also could rattle off the names of institutions that stepped up to help by offering a full ride or two. They knew they all knew the name Trinity and Hartford. They knew Texas Christian University, which gave full rides uh, to two students. This might sound funny, but I love this detail. They all knew Central Michigan, home of the Chippewas, because they they found a way to, to enroll two students. So mm-hmm. um, by and large, you know the the U.S. colleges and universities that stepped up were not the top 50 U.S. news institutions. They were not the wealthiest institutions. They were all the other colleges, uh, you know, institutions that rent, uh, represent the bulk of American higher education that found a way, um, found some money, made it a priority to help one or two, in some cases more of these students. Most of them were U.S. colleges. But yeah, when I'm hanging out in Nepal and Kathmandu asking where these students wanted to apply, many of them wanted to apply to institutions that had stepped up and helped 
this go round. Makes sense. Tell me more about what took you to Nepal. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you've covered the story. Yeah, you know, totally. I mean, these the the this, the story, at least in that moment, being you know the the, the displacement of these students yeah. in terms of the promise that was made and them coming to, you know, to the U.S. to go to different schools. You know, what what were you hoping to get out of going there and and talking to students that that weren't impacted by this? Yeah, I think it was um, it was one question that was just rattling around in my mind as I was writing. Uh, I think I wrote four articles between April and September about. Um, the aftermath of the UT Tyler situation. Uh, one question I kept asking uh, counselors over there, counselors who knew the international space, and I also asked it to several of the Nepali students themselves. Um, you know, I kept thinking, uh, okay, say there had never been such a place as UT Tyler, and therefore you never could have been offered a full ride scholarship from this university in East Texas. What would have been your best option otherwise? Um, what was your second best option? Um, and for most of those students, it, it wasn't anything close to a full ride. So I started thinking, okay, so we know that a full ride for an international student anywhere in the U.S. is pretty damn rare. Um, so what is the implication of that for a really poor country uh, that, as I've learned, is full, a uh, small country though it is, is full of high-achieving students who have gone to English speaking high schools and by and large they desperately want to study in the united states um long way of saying i became really interested in the context uh from which all these nepali students who lost their scholarships to ut tyler had grown up in what did it mean not to have a school counselor um what did it mean to have parents who really knew nothing about getting to college in the States. And unlike many parents in the country next door, which is China, um, didn't have parents who were like, you know, learning all they could about this process from the time their kid was very young. Which in many is, ways, you're kind of going back in history or you're, 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 you're going back in time a little bit by covering students that are more or less in exactly the same boat. And yeah, and so I, I just, as, as I was asking students and counselors to help me understand that context so I could hopefully write more meaningfully about, uh, uh, you know, the UT Tyler crisis or scandal, um, I simply just became interested in what, for lack of a better description, college access challenges look like on the other side of the world. And so I think um, something that led me to that was reporting I'd done the previous year uh, in Dallas, where I w spent several days in um, the college advising office of a public high school in Dallas, um, talking to low-income students, homeless students, undocumented students, you name it, about just how damn hard it was to apply to college and pay for it, and what the counselor's challenge was in helping them get there. I started to get the strong sense that if I went all the way to the other side of the world in Nepal, I would hear many similar stories but with an added layer of complexity because um, these students are well outside of any system that can help them. So it just, I, I didn't want to go to Nepal to write another follow-up about the UT Tyler saga, but the UT Tyler saga um, led me to um, try to better understand over the phone and over Skype screens um, the challenges poor students face um, all, all throughout the world, but here in Nepal, that being my focus, what that looked like. And so uh, I think if I pitched my editors on doing a follow-up to the Tyler crisis in Nepal, they might have said, well, 
<laughs> I don't know about that, but um, I, what I pitched them on was uh, I don't you know I don't want to go and write more about this Tyler thing, um, but I want to better understand. Hey, what does it look like um, if you're a poor kid who wants to study at an American college? And you have really like a long, lonely path, right, to get there. And uh, so, yeah, the story led me to it. But um, I, in the end, decided that there was no peg. There was no direct reference to Tyler. And that story I ended up writing earlier this year um, just because it, it was my reason for going. But it wasn't my reason for writing that story about those particular students. Well, the thing that I think the service that I think that story does is like when you when you look at um, – there's data out there to to demonstrate that um, among you know industrialized nations of the world, Americans value a college degree less than a whole giant swath of the world, um, <clears throat> and that when you look specifically at Asia, you know uh, China and India and Vietnam. And you know Singapore and, and and Nepal, you know college education is just it's sort of everything. You know I mean it's a massive massive deal, and we have been under attack. We uh, you know I guess I don't say we, but you know the the concept of college and the concept of like what a university and what a college can provide to people for people in this country and who are the kind of people that ought to be going to college and you know what is it like it's been uh, really put through the ringer. Um, and, you know, as evidenced by, you know, my last episode I put out and, you know, Doug Weber and we were talking about the, you know, the, uh, endowment tax and, and things like that, that I think that it's, it's difficult. I think we, ha- we, we all struggle as humans, but especially in, in, in the land of, uh, immediate gratification, we struggle with gratitude, you know, <laughs> that we get to a place and we, can't help but feel somehow entitled to be there maybe and maybe I'm speaking just from my own lived experience and and my own you know class and and my own very kind of elite position relative to people who may have gone through a you know an advanced degree or 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 been working in this field to to understand it um that you're like okay well then what's next right that it's a big problem that I have with the way that we approach this whole thing is that we spend so much time thinking about how to get in. I mean, that's mm-hmm. your whole job. Sure. Right? Is to talk about how people are getting in um, so that they can be good when they get out. And I would imagine you have a lot of staff talking about what happens in between. But, you know, your readership is not necessarily focusing on that part, mm-hmm. you know, and the the, the goodness and the great stuff that you can get while you're while you're there and reading this story and learning about the people that have that like just I mean un, just immeasurable degree of gratitude for this I think it helped me and I hope it helped other people that read it understand how valuable this really is and that getting in anywhere Tyler which yeah. is, I mean, it's not, you know, one of plan others most selective places. Sure. It's going to end up on the, you know, most emailed list of the New York Times. Um, anywhere is like you should have an immense amount of gratitude for that. Absolutely. I mean, um, 
one thing that struck me about so many of the students I interviewed from Nepal, you know, I heard someone say, maybe quoted in a story, saying something kind of um, flippant about, you know, well, these these kids didn't really know UT Tyler from UT Austin, and and I would say um, big fucking deal. Uh, <laughs> sure, and also I would I would say that no, don't they know that Matthew they, McConaughey doesn't even represent Tyler? They they all knew they all got it. They all understood that UT Tyler was was not um, as selective or prestigious, perhaps or that? famous that, as UT from? Austin. I think. I think it would be um, a mistake to underestimate just how so many of these students, uh, at least the ones I met, how much homework they had done. They um, there was there were many many things that they didn't know about the United States or about college, but there were many things that they had learned, that they had gleaned, um, that they had read about. Um, they understood that they were all going to um, a lesser known campus of the UT system. They were more than fine with that. Um, they were going to give it their all, um, and I think that relates to your point about gratitude. And that is, um, sure, uh, any of them would have jumped at the chance to go to one of the ten most selective or famous colleges in the U.S. Um, they understood that Tyler was not one of them. Um, they desperately wanted to go there anyway. They were thrilled to go there anyway. All of the students I interviewed who um, had had. Uh, been given um, a full ride scholarship and then lost it, described to me um, the immense, joyful celebration um, that followed the good news. Um, uh, Great meals, uh, special dinners made, celebrations that encompass like three or four generations of uh, members of their family. Um, It's just the some of them described crying off and on for hours out of uh, gratitude, uh, joy, thrill, and being thrilled, uh, falling down on their knees and not being able to walk, dancing around their room until they were exhausted and like you know out of breath. Um, uh, and, and you know, certainly we know students here, affluent students who celebrate too, and their and their victories, I would say, are are absolutely meaningful. But um, yeah, I was a middle-class kid that grew up knowing I'd go to college. It was just a fact. The drama was where I'd go, but not not if or whether I'd go. And um, to meet so many students, be they here or on the other side of the world, but especially the latter, given just how many obstacles they had to overcome, um, it really renewed to me, um, for me, I should say, a sense of like why all this matters, why this is important. Um, an, an immense opportunity that I would say for most, I hope all of these students from Nepal, um, it, it, it's going to fundamentally uh, change their lives by simply giving them more options. I mean, we can talk about um, global mobility, socioeconomic mobility, um, zooming out, but I mean, on the, on the scale of, you know, meeting these students face to face, like understanding, this doesn't mean they're going to have a perfect life, but it means that so many doors will open. Um, if any of them ever lose that gratitude for that opportunity, I'd be shocked. Um, I just don't know if you can say that about, you know, every single American well, teenager. Well, you know, and it's interesting. There's one of the other stories that I want to talk to you about that, you know, is, is related, I guess, in terms of the the realities of, of social mobility and, and, and the extent to which college is the chief uh, kind of engine of doing that, that is the uh, the article about the uh, the verification trap, right? That um, there are a lot of students in this country, uh, and I think that they're 
are plenty of people who, you know, could be forgiven for saying, you know, uh, in Nepal, okay, but what about here? Yeah, right? absolutely. You know, yeah. And um, there is uh, a lot of work being done in this country to help make sure that, you know, there's a, a greater degree of access that's happening um, across higher ed. But as has been said on this podcast before, like, it's just harder if you're poor, like at every step of the game so that, yes, like a full tuition scholarship would be great. And I think that it's one of those things that I think John Burdick, uh, my my uh, my sort of everything in the uh, and that brings me here to this table guest of a previous episode that will be probably similar in length to this one, University of Rochester and my admissions counselor at USC, you know, saying that that when you talk about like the difference between financial aid and scholarships, like nobody wants to be on financial aid. Everybody wants a scholarship mm-hmm. that in this country, you know, you want to win things, you yeah. know, and you, you, you want to be recognized for your efforts. You don't want to be recognized for your needs. Right. And yet, you know, the poorest of the poor in this country can go to college basically for free as long as they submit to this fucking hideous process over and over and over again. Don't he's open. Go ahead. Come on. Let's. Okay. Well, it's good there to we hydrate. Go. Yeah. Um, the but that 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 they need to do this not once, not twice, not thrice. <laughs> you know, but every year they're in college, uh, they need to submit the FAFSA, right? Yeah. And one of the things that you uh, brought to the fore is the degree to which. Not that the concept of verification existed, but was actually being exercised by the Department of Education. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is just a, another hurdle, and this is an, an awful big one. You know, I came to understand it better through firsthand reporting. Verification, um, I always knew about it. Um, I knew it was this hurdle. I'd read about it in policy papers. Um, but I'll be honest with you. Um, I never really gave it that much thought, and I should have. But when I spent about a week in a college counseling office at a public high school in Dallas, full of low-income students, and sat next to some of them, talking with them as they opened their portals from wherever, Texas A&M University, University of Texas at Arlington, and they saw these red X's, sometimes several of them, indicating that they had to do something or that they hadn't done something and they needed to provide more documentation about their family's financial situation in order to be considered for the aid that they were almost surely entitled to. Um, And these were students who, um, in many cases, uh, didn't know how to fill out an envelope um, to put in the mail, um, had never used a stamp, uh, just didn't know many things, not because they weren't smart, just because it wasn't in the realm of their experiences. Um, and so imagine if you are a low-income student and there's a good chance that one or both of your parents um, is ambivalent at best uh, about you going to college. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they don't want to let you go. Maybe they don't think it's worth it. Um, you already feel insecure. You realize the system's not set up for you. And yet you apply anyway. And then soon after submitting one or two or 10 applications, you get these red X's on your screen telling you you need to submit this document, this form. Um, Being a 17 or 18 year old kid, you probably have no freaking clue what these things mean. 
um, and you're scared or you're frustrated, you feel stymied, um, do you really feel like this process was made for you? Um, you have to get the counselor. In this case, these students were lucky. They had an incredible counselor. And yet, it was still hard. It was still scary. Name names. This was Sarah Morgan, who is the college advisor at Seagoville High School in Dallas. And she is the in-school advisor, and she works for ASP Dallas, which is a nonprofit organization that provides college advisors uh, to maybe 19 or 20 public high schools and charter schools in Dallas. Uh, I'm not violating my neutrality and objectivity to say that this is a freaking incredible organization run by great, dedicated people. Um, can't say enough about them and how much they did for students. But what I learned is so here are the here are the kind of students that you're talking about. So let me I'm going to read a I'm going to read a, a line here. Uh, verification, such a bland and bloodless word. Don't be fooled. It's really the story of a high school senior with no ties to his parents who waited for four months for the IRS to send the tax form he requested a dozen times. It's the teenage mother who had to dig up receipts for what she had spent on her child. It's the father with no internet service who used a library computer to try to get an old form from a tax service but couldn't afford the $40 fee. It's the football player who couldn't enroll at community college because his mother refused to give him a tax transcript. For the most vulnerable students, the line between enrolling and not enrolling, graduating and dropping out is already thin. Verification difficulties push some people right over that line. Yeah, and so I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. Um, but uh, that, that that's an encapsulation of like the flesh and blood um, you know, uh, reality of what this verification aid process looks like. Um, all those examples that you just read, which came from uh, my article, uh, those are all real people. Someone asked, are those hypotheticals? I'm like, no, these are all real people who, for one reason or another, uh, didn't want to or couldn't uh, you know, appear in the story in a more fleshed out way. But those are all those are all real people. I interviewed them um, or was told about them by a counselor who knew the situation. Those are just you know three or four examples of. Um, you know what what the upshot of being asked to provide this additional documentation in some cases considerable uh, layers of documentation um, just to go to the next step which is to be considered for federal aid um, that those are just indications of what um, what that looks like um, but I mean honestly I mean this is this 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 speaks to the importance um, of on-the-ground reporting, of, of, of why I really cherish the um, occasional opportunities to um, to meet face-to-face and to be in the midst of people uh, who I'm writing about. Um, if I hadn't uh, been there, um, I think it would have been harder for me to fully understand and appreciate um, in real human terms like what verification is, and that is it's not just this process that is spinning around in the bureaucracy. It is an experience, often a harrowing one, that affects, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of, of people, by and large, the most vulnerable populations of prospective or would-be college students, um, uh, or college students who are, who are already enrolled who still, as you said, have to do this every single year. Um, and it was just one of you know many uh, things that would be hidden if you hadn't had this experience. I didn't have to do verification when I applied or when I was enrolled as a college student, so it wasn't it wasn't true to me that this was like the the real picture. So let me guess: the reason we saw an uptick in the degree of 
verification going on <clears throat> is because we've got uh, a federal uh, administration and executive branch that is probably a little bit more concerned, to put it one way, with, uh, you know, people uh, skimming off the top, you know, taking government resources, uh, you know, all the way to the bank, right? That, um, you know, the uh, this old, you know, welfare queen ideology, right? Is that sort of what we're talking well, about? Well, you know, I, it, it could I mean, be. I, uh, do you have any evidence? I, I don't... Um, I don't have evidence of that, and and, and I, I do think that um, the much likelier explanation for what was going on during that uh, aid cycle, that admission cycle, uh, when I happened to write that uh, article, uh, it you know has to do more with uh, algorithms. You know, I mean, everything's an algorithm these days. Uh, Wait a second, I so that doesn't that doesn't support my conspiracy theory? Yeah, yeah. Well, what the, that guy over there is kind of watching us. Have you noticed him? He really needs to take off those sunglasses inside. But, uh, um, you know, I, I talked to, uh, to uh, you know, people in the know at the, at the, at the Ed Department. And, um, you know, they, they offered me a very limited explanation of what was going on. But, you know, look, the, these, these are not uh, evil people at the Ed Department um, setting out to make people's lives harder. Uh, the part of the explanation they gave me was that there had been, as there often is, some rejiggering of the algorithms that determine um, uh, who's selected for verification. They also pointed to a couple of very real, um, you know, developments that, that that might well have had an impact on an uptick in verification numbers. And one had to do with prior prior year. So now we're getting like real geeky um, to talk about a, you know, a significant change um, recently, um, you know, that, that allowed... Um, that allowed applicants to submit tax information from not the previous year, but the year before that, um, that, that, that everyone hailed as a, most everyone hailed as a, as a meaningful and good change that would simplify and mm-hmm. streamline the process and allow for, you know, a, a better timeline uh, to uh, apply for aid and receive aid, right? Um, but that that, um, but that the overlap of two aid cycles in prior prior year, um, you know, threw off the algorithm that determines verification. Um, that surely that was part of it. I don't know what else might have um, affected it or caused that uptick. But whatever reason or reasons go into um, any explanation of why in a given year there's been an uptick, and certainly there was a huge uptick um, during that cycle. Um, this is a fact, and that is if you are. If you are low or lower income, um, you are far more likely to be selected for this process. Um, you know, the vast majority of families selected for verification over and over and over again are uh, in the Pell eligible bands. Um, and so essentially you're saying the people who are already going to have, um, you know, the greatest challenges paying for this whole thing, no matter how much aid a student gets, um, are the ones who are going to be put through the most hoops. Um, and, and have to, you know, untangle themselves from red tape. I mean, that's just a fact. Um, and that's what I think worries so many people about verification, no matter, no matter the many reasons, surely, that go into why there's a, there's a big uptick. Right. Well, I am going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to make PDFs of these articles. I'm going to put them on my website for people to download so they can get past the paywall. Cool. Take that. Yeah, take that, Cron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, if there's some sort of cease and desist that comes through, I'm, I'll honor it. 
Okay. I can, uh, I can, I'm not, I can throw yeah. some free links at you too. I mean, <laughs> All right. We're allowed to do that. Well, I want, okay, I good. Want people yeah. to read uh, yes. the stories if they haven't. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, what, you know, I want to ask you, what are you going to be paying attention to in the next year? I mean, here we are, February 21st for crying out loud. Uh, we're only, we're, we're just, you know, we're just in the infancy of 2019. Uh, as the as the year plays out, you know, what are some of these things that are that are happening that you you are looking ahead to as 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 stuff you're going to be keeping your eye on? I should say that you did have something happen here uh, a couple of days ago on February 18th. Other changes on the horizon, uh, some developments in admissions, business models, college rankings, and more are still just emerging. And you opined that more colleges will adopt. Yeah. Test optional admissions. You, I mean, this is this. A, where yeah, is this? I mean, you know, I mean, more colleges going test optional. Uh, and we're not like, just talking about like the like saying, you know uh, Doctor you know, Nick School the, of you know live the, taxidermy is going test optional like real. Yeah, ones. yeah. You know, they they've uh, they still cling to their uh, test requirement. Um, the Do taxidermy they? school? I mean, you don't want um, you want to be sure what you're getting at a there's a really strong program. Quite, well, I mean, it's uh, live taxidermy yeah. too. That, yeah, yeah. Li- I mean that's uh, that's challenging. You know, I mean you have to have a steady hand. Well, it's certainly, um, a, you know, being able to perform well under in a speeded kind of an environment, I think yeah. would, would really handle. I mean, you I know, mean, they'll they'll accept the CLT. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. um, in addition Will to they? Uh, the more famous exams, yeah. You know, um, uh, I mean, saying that more more colleges of any kind will continue to go test optional. I mean, that's like saying you know the sun the sun will keep coming up. Um, you know, we, we know that's true. We hope it's true. But um, I mean, I don't love that exercise of being kind of coy there in print. Um, you know, my my distillation there was uh, focusing on um, at least a couple of, uh, for lack of a better word, really big name colleges. You know, I think I've said it before. Uh, I'll say it again. Name names. I, I mean, I can't. I that's, can't in this uh, case. I can't in this case. You know. Um, where I Does have some one of them rhyme with Earth Moth, perhaps round. Um, uh, let me think about I, it. I, I mean, these um, are these are these are these are colleges that everyone heard of. These aren't uh, Blue University of Lenver. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I just you know, I, I don't know. Um, okay, you know, in in both cases, uh, to be honest, with you, these are. Um, uh, admissions uh, officials who, um, who who for whatever reason have brought have brought me into um, a, a, a background discussion of, of of how and why they're thinking about this. Um, you know, if I had to guess, both of them will give the news of this uh, change. If in fact it happens this year, you know, both institutions will probably give you know the the uh, scoop two. to uh, the New York Times. There's two institutions, uh, so you know exactly who they are. What? No, I know of two. Yeah, okay. I mean, okay. yeah, I mean, the, the, these two institutions are are big name, prominent institutions, and are they elite though? Uh, are they elite? Yeah, I mean, they're elite. They're uh, they're like super smooth, okay. peanut butter, <laughs> deluxe. Um, they smell good. Their campuses uh-huh. really have a it's nice important. fragrance. It's important. Um, uh, you know, but again, but again, I you know, as I tried to, I'm trying to telegraph in there that something important. Uh, as many people would say, it would be important for institutions on the tier, if we can call it that, uh, of the University of Chicago. I mean, that's that's a pretty high tier, right? I mean, they're highly ranked, yeah, uh, they're selective. Um, you know, they give out maroon towels. Um, uh, people, it's not maroon though, is it? It's burgundy, crimson, or something? Well, that's another one. Yeah, 
Hey, Maroon. Yeah, Maroon. Okay. This it? uh, Maroon, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, those towels are nice. You know, the towels that Chicago sends to counselors. I bet they, I mean, they must be. I mean, they're super I've absorbent. The, I've not had the pleasure. Yeah. Well, I, I know some counselors, that, you know, they got them and they, they, they love them. Yeah, institutions on that tier are are at least seriously considering um, uh, dropping the the test and and okay. admissions uh, contacts I have at these two institutions um, who do seem pretty serious about making this decision feel um, in so many words empowered um, by what Chicago has done because one thing we know. Um, in some ways, colleges love to be seen as innovators, but when it comes to uh, the hyper-competitive realm of super-selective colleges, right, there's kind of a fear of, like, coming out with some brand-new crazy wants, car that no one's ever seen. Everybody wants the other one to jump first, right? Yeah, exactly, and I, and I think that, um, I mean, I, I think many people believe, too, is credit. Uh, Jim Nondorf, the head of enrollment and admissions at Chicago, um, yeah, I made this decision for a variety of reasons uh, based on a look at their data, for one thing. Um, I mean, I think there was a hope that, uh, you know, other colleges that were so inclined would follow suit. And, I, and all I'm saying is uh, I have strong indications that that will happen in the next year or so. I don't think it'll be across the board and say the Ivy League. But um, if you've got an institution or two in the Ivy League thinking about this, and I know that they there's a couple that are at least thinking about it. Um, I, I think that's meaningful, and I think it speaks to the power of a big-name, hyper-selective college that many institutions are trying to emulate um, in Chicago, mm-hmm. making this move, that that's, that that's meaningful. Well, one of the things is, you know, you, you can kind of set your watch by a little, is that, you know, after, you know, none of these things are going to come out uh, sort of like until they enroll their class for this year right i mean that, that in general you, you you yeah you know the news so, cycle around this stuff doesn't you know you're not going to get big policy announcements until you know some like late summer right yeah, before the recruitment cycle sort of starts anew is that right you want it you want it to be i think uh you know in a certain window and that's in between uh well you know announcing the the awesomeness of your you know record setting freshman class for this fall um but also you know so not too early um, to interfere with all that, you know, that whole communication stream. Um, you also don't want too many people who just applied to your school saying, well, what the hell? I wish I had the test optional option, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But you want it early enough. Like all those poor med students yeah. at NYU. You, yeah, you want it early <laughs> enough so that uh, you're you're getting on the radar screen, you're making some splash, perhaps, um, with all the applicants who are going to apply to your institution the following year. And also, I mean, as one university told me, um, you know, part of their considerations is, okay, we have the following 18, um, you know, printed materials that we send out every year and that we tweak every year. I spend a lot of money on those. And if, and if we're, if we're going to go test optional, we need to figure out, figure that out soon enough so that we can have the most economical approach to ordering like Hmm. the 50 million pieces of paper, Mm -hmm. um, early enough so that it's cheaper and, getting it out to high schools and getting it in the mail, um, doing whatever else we need to do with our website so that students who are currently juniors and their moms and dads are seeing that at some time during which it might have the most optimal impact, right? Right. Um, And I I also think uh, what I've heard from, again, these two institutions that should be unnamed for now um, is a question about um, okay, we didn't, you know, uh, we didn't necessarily want to be first, or we weren't able to be first among 
you know, hyper-selective, national, internationally renowned institutions like Chicago, we, we, we weren't first. Um, it could be cool to be second or third or fourth, but if we're like eighth, you know, does the impact wear off? I mean, I think we've seen that among all kinds of institutions that have gone test optional in the last 20 years. Say, um, if you're the third, I don't know, um, liberal arts college in New England or in, you know, the Pennsylvania area where you've got a liberal arts college, you know, every five feet, um, if you're not first, second or third, do you really get a bump or an impact, especially now when people are much more familiar with test optional? Do you really get that much of a bump at all, mm-hmm. publicity-wise, by by doing this? I can say that if you were the first Ivy to do it, they're going to get that Hoover bump. They're going to, I mean, they're going to get the Hoover bump, which you know has been known to like uh, quake the earth. Totally, uh, they'll get the Nick Anderson bump at the Post and the New York Times bump. But if you're the second or third, does that the Bruni really, bump? Maybe the Bruni, Oh, the Bruni bump is real. That's a I big mean, bump. He's a he's a kind fellow. Um, so you asked what else I was thinking about. I yes, mean, test. I mean, I wake up thinking about test optional most and days. go to bed. Yeah, um, no doubt. And that's why I cr- <laughs> that's why I cry in the morning. Um, but uh, a couple things. One is uh, my experience. I mean, I want my experience in Nepal, which uh, you know came at considerable expense of time and money for my employer to to amount to to something uh, meaningful. So I'm 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 just grabbing that thought, and um, you know I'm going to write uh, I think a, a couple more pieces about. Um, you know, the experiences of, of some other international students mm-hmm. uh, trying to get here and also uh, about, okay, what is it like? Even if you have a full ride and that's a glorious thing, um, and you're, but you're a very low-income student from the uh, other side of the world, uh, what, 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 is, what is your life like? You're mm-hmm. happy to have that scholarship, mm-hmm. unquestionably. But what are the day-to-day experiences you have, and what does that look like? I'm I'm working on an article now that will that will hopefully bring that to life. You well, know? I think it's important to you know to to you know to the extent that you're as you know mentioned before responsible for creating some transparency, keeping some of these operators honest about what they do when they talk about international enrollment. You right. know, writ large, they're really not talking about the same degree of. Uh, you know, distribution along the economic That's uh, right. yeah. scale sure. when you're talking about internationally, you're talking about rich people who can afford to come. Right. So, right. So, I mean, mean, so yeah, I mean, that, and that, and that's, that's something I'm also trying to figure out the best way to tell a story that, that hopefully resonates with some people, um, that, that delivers that reminder that, um, you know, international diversity is great, but some institutions really do. Um, you know, I think a better job than others, uh, uh, if you want to think of it in terms of who's doing a good job of reflecting socioeconomic diversity within their international applicant pool. For instance, hard to hard to do. Well, I mean, honestly, your former uh, your your former boss. Um, this is something I've talked with John Burdick about. I mean, you know, who owe me a beer, I guess. But uh, no, I mean, he he's actually. Uh, Help me understand this whole uh, landscape uh, better. Um, in a couple of conversations I've had with him, um, you know, what is that? What is it? What's a meaningful way to tell a story about socioeconomic diversity um, on a global scale when you're mm-hmm. talking about what a U.S. college feels like it can do? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an expensive proposition domestically, even more so internationally. Um, and also, what are the, you know, I'm, I'm talking to a couple of students now who have full rides who are. Uh, from poor families in other countries. Um, they're talking about the ups and downs of their experiences, not just on campus and in terms of a cultural adjustment, but um, what it's like to be working under the table at a gas station. Um, and what kind of college experience is that? I'm trying to to um, find a way to, to, to tease out those experiences in a way that 
mm-hmm. hopefully is interesting to people who read the Chronicle, um, who care about higher ed and college access. Mm-hmm. Um, and beyond that, I mean, uh, I'm really pivoting to write about what what I think is this great and underappreciated um, profession, which is college advising, college counseling. Uh, whether you're a school counselor and you have guidance in your title or or whatever it is, um, doesn't matter so much, but how are you helping uh, young people on this path? I mean, I'm, I'm working on what I hope to be a kind of major project um, along those lines um, to bring to light what is the meaning of that uh, and value of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know there's a deficit um, who, you know, some, some, some students are lucky enough to grow up with great teachers mm-hmm. and live in great neighborhoods and, oh, probably they're going to have a great college counselor too. Some of them grow That's up in homes thing. with great teachers. Yeah, for sure. Like me. Yeah, like me too. Yeah, I remember that. Um, But as we know, many people don't. So what are the implications of that for uh, for colleges, right? I mean, most people who work in admissions know this is a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know what? What is what does that look like in 2019? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's that's probably like my major obsession this Mm. year is to try to uh, flesh that out more. Um, for people that you know work on college campuses um, and who just you know may or may not spend meaningful time in any high school or have been to a high school in thirty years, it's a big question. I, I mean, it's something that I've I've put a presentation proposal in for the regional ACAC basically about this. You know that what you know what is the reality of a student's life these days as a kid. How much of that is a universal truth? Yeah. As you're just a 17 year old, and we're all 17 year olds, and our hormonal, you know, composition is on average the same because we're human beings at that age. But also, you know, what are the new tools and and techniques that colleges are using to 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 either be able to leverage that, and to what extent is you know, can is, is authenticity a real expectation? Because I don't know about you, but I think that's a word I hear all the time, and that probably used to say over and over and over again: "Be just be yourself. Yeah, just be authentic. Don't worry about it." Like you know, it's a terrifying thought for many seventeen-year-olds. Like, well, be myself. Who is that? I mean, and I I, I can't recommend highly enough uh, the film Eighth Grade by Bo Burnham. It, it's just on that issue of authenticity, like these kids don't know who they are. <laughs> they don't know what authentic is. I mean, a lot of us struggle. I mean, it's part of the human condition, I think, to wonder who you are for ever. Um, and so being yourself is just a silly thing to tell kids, I think. And I am guilty of having done that. You know, but now I'm on the other side talking right. to them. I realize like that is just, that, yeah. that that's a tall order. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I also recommend American Vandal um, on Netflix. There's two seasons of it. And the second one, uh, particularly the very, very last episode, um, I'd love that's a guy I would love to have on on here to talk about his perception of what it's like to be a high school student. But mm-hmm. you know, he says something along the lines of, or the the, the 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 student, the actor, narrator at the end says, you know, that students basically live two lives. You know, they've got their kind of life that they know with their friends and their curated life that they put out yeah. um, on locker. social media and the, or their locker, <laughs> virtual or locker, what have you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, two, you know, not not viewable. Okay. By college, but you know it's unless there. Yeah. you choose yeah. to, okay, um, an authentic locker, just full of authenticity. Yeah, just me, just random stuff. I put in Pull here whatever for you no want reason. out of that. Yeah. Throw it into the you know application. Just you know whatever. We'll see what happens. But that um, one of the things that they that I think we accuse students of being is the most sort of like coddled generation. And one of the things that this very end of the second season of American Vandal 
deposits is that they are, in fact, the most exposed. Mm-hmm. That um, they put themselves out there, yeah. and then, in fact, there's an expectation to put yourself out there in a way that um, that previous generations have never had to reckon with. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and so I'm I'm very very interested in how. I mean, when you think about it, you've got colleges are talking to kids. You know, they all know we're talking to the parents. I mean, because let's be honest, like they're the ones that have that, you know, but they send the letter to the kid. They talk to the kid, you know, they get all the paper that comes through, you know, that they have to realize whether they're going to put their test optional information in there or not in time, you know, all comes addressed to the kid and the kid reads it and they've got to feel it. They've got to absorb it. And I just, I don't think there's a really good connection being made there between the overwhelming majority of colleges and the 17 year old brain. What do you think? Uh, I think there's absolutely a disconnect. And when I say I want to explore um, what what's happening on you know the high school level, what's happening around that counselor's desk, uh, I mean that's part of that's part of the deal. Um, getting in, getting in the mechanics of getting in. It's real important. It's real important to everyone. Um, but I do think there's broader. There's a broader question there, or maybe 101 broader questions about, um, hey, here's this process that we've engineered, we've built it, we've built it into what it is. We're all adults. This is what we want. Um, kid, do it. Oh, and be authentic. Um, sounds really great, right? Except it's terrifying. Um, and, and I honestly don't remember many parts of being 17 and 18. Um, uh, so I've asked myself, uh, what what are ways of reporting on uh, this end of the process, right? And the most important people of all, they're not enrollment managers, they're not freaking college presidents, they're not even college counselors or teachers, but they are the students themselves. Um, is there any way through some creativity and just good reporting, talking to these strange creatures that we forget what it's like to be them? Uh, is there any way that in, in some small, um, perhaps small way uh, as a journalist that I can um, bring that to life a little better, no matter who these students are, rich, poor, in between, uh, that might help, uh, you know, the informed nerds who read our publication remember a little bit and understand a little better, like, okay, this is what it's like to be that kid. Um, this, is, this is what our process is doing. Uh, to them, whether we wanted to or not. I mean, that's something that um, I've written about. Like, you can build this admissions process and add things to it, take things away from it, change the rules, change the deadlines. Great. You might think that it's not telling kids something, right? Telling them something important about the world of adults, right? Mm-hmm. And prestige and the things we value in yeah, society. What, what matters in this universe mm-hmm. that you're going to inherit? Uh, we can think that, well, this is just the admissions process. Um, you know, the rest of, you know, the rest of the world's happening over here. This is just what we're asking of you as applicants. Um, you know, it's not really communicating any meaningful message. It's just this kind of transactional process. Um, I think that's total BS. Um, it's telling kids something. I'm sorry, what does that stand for? What's that? Bullshit. Oh, that, yeah. oh, sorry. Um, I thought you meant Bachelor of um, Science. Yeah, or, yeah the, BS okay. of, uh, the BS of BS. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
That's one of my honorary degrees. But um, no, it's, it's telling kids something. And it's telling different kids different things, perhaps. But like, what, what is that message that, that is transmitted? I mean, this is something that um, romantic fellow, though he is, uh, Lloyd Thacker has talked about since 2003, right? I mean, what, what, what is this uh, process passing on to students? This might seem like a really highfalutin or kind of uh, quixotic, you know, concern, right? Because it's all about getting in and getting that scholarship and, you know, having the prestigious career. And there's, you know, for many people, those things are important. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. But uh, by and large, like, what is the impact of this process on Mm -hmm. on students and families? And I don't think it's I don't think it's just being, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, hopelessly romantic to to say that the answer to those questions matter too, as much as all the other stuff certainly matters. Um, If I can if I can bring that to life in in some stories like uh, that's got to be a thing to to try to do. Well, I hope you do. I know you will. And we all look forward to reading about it. Um, and anybody, if you can't read about it because of the paywall, just let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll poke Eric. We'll get the free links. We'll get the PDFs, like whatever you Yeah, we'll say. I mean, yes, the paywall, you know, um, is there. Is this going to be a defense um, of the paywall? No, I'm just oh. saying that uh, not, not every Chronicle story is behind the paywall. Um, and some people don't know this. Like if the Chronicle tweets out a link on the official Chronicle of Higher Ed Twitter account or shares it on Facebook, uh, that link is free at least for some period of time. Good. Hot take, hot tip. Yeah. Do it, file it away. Didn't hear it from me. No, this is certainly not being recorded or anything. Yeah. Uh, award-winning journalist Eric Hoover, bound to win more awards, I'm v- virtually certain, for uh, The Long Lonely Path. Look forward to um, keeping tabs on your uh, career and reading all of your stories. Thank you so much, homie, for spending my birthday with me, drinking some sips of sunshine, yeah. talking and geeking out about stuff that I like to geek out about with hey, people like you. you're very welcome, and it's a true pleasure to be on the pod. Thank you for having me. Anytime. You'll be back. Cool. You'll be back. Nice. Please follow Eric on Twitter at Eric Hoove, not just because he's got his finger on the pulse of things and Twitter is the uh, circulatory system, but uh, also because that's where the free links to stories tend to emerge. I think that in the breathless race to make sense of the environmental context dashboard recently, uh, Eric's piece was the most uh, in shape, as it were. It marched evenly up the stairs, and when it got to the top, It was uh, not out of breath, right? And if you want to learn more about the research underlying the environmental context dashboard, speaking of, uh, please check out episode 17 with Professor Michael Bastido of the University of Michigan School of Education, whose research forms the basis for uh, for having the the environmental context dashboard in the first place and, uh, and its shape of it, for sure. All right, you've spent enough time here as it is, so... Thanks, everybody. Rate the show, subscribe, share it with friends, send me an email, check out crushpod.com, and above all, in the end, out there, in the world, in your world, spread love.